1: is the John Fugelsang Podcast.
2: Sirius XM Progress. Good evening and welcome to Channel 127. I am here in the SiriusXM XM studios in beautiful Hollywood. Russell Wolf is running the boards for us right over here. Executive producer Chris Hauselt manages this beast. From the South Carolina Bureau, and the mighty Thea Harper is holding this entire thing together, and I don't know how, from the Brooklyn Bureau, we are so glad to have you with us. You know what? I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad I'm here. I'm so glad we're all still here. Let's let's try to remember to enjoy it as much as we can. I, I, I'm not even accustomed to having lost David Crosby and Tina Turner, and I'm nowhere near getting used to Sinead O'Connor or Robbie Robertson. For the next three hours, we're going to be having a great show. Bob Seska will be here talking about all the politics, and there's a lot to cover. And then joining us tonight, the great Greg Proops, who many of you may know from his appearances on Whose Line Is It Anyway? and his just incredibly brilliant stand-up. And of course, as always, we are glad to hear from you. This is the show that comes on to close every day here on SiriusXM Progress and bring it to the fraud, the fascism, the fear, and the fools. We are the muckraking, risk-taking, rule-breaking, claim-staking, mischief-making, hip-shaking, wake-and-baking monster of a show. Show called Tell me everything. We invite you guys to call up all night long. We're open to everybody of every age and race and gender and creed and identifier. And we love to hear from liberals and progressives and Democrats and moderates and, and fans of just being anti evil. And we also welcome conservatives. And fascists who think they're still conservatives and fascists who think they're still Christians and fake patriots, trickle downers, Christians in name only and racists who think they can't be racist because they sat through a Kevin Hart movie once on the superstation. You're all welcome here. We will be friendly. We will not bullshit you. We are bringing good trouble to the right wing bubble and we've got a lot to cover. Special counsel Jack Smith, who knew, obtained a search warrant for Donald Trump's Twitter account back in January. I, I mean, that's not sliding into your DMs. That's sliding off with your DMs. And Elon Musk's social media chimera was so slow to comply, they have racked up a $350,000 fine in the process. Ooh, he's going for Trump's DMs. At least six people have died, and hospitals in Maui are inundated with burn and smoke inhalation victims. Horrible wildfires have swept toward the sea. It is a nightmare scenario in one of the most beautiful spots on Earth. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis? He's fired another state prosecutor, another black woman, because he says she was too soft on crime. Uh, Iraq has banned the word homosexuality and asking media outlets to use the phrase sexual deviance in its place. What do I tell you guys all the time? Conservative fundamentalist Christians have more in common with conservative fundamentalist Muslims than they have in common with Jesus, the guy in the book they pretend to follow. Folks, fundamentalism is its own religion. If we could just find an island and put all the fundamentalist Christians, all the fundamentalist Muslims, all the fundamentalist Jews, all the people who just believe God likes them and it's okay if you kill other people because God's chosen you to be behind his velvet rope, those people, my God, my God, homophobes, Uh, try that in Iran. Dude, Iran's on your side. And COVID hospitalizations in the U.S. have risen 43 percent from late June to the beginning of this month. I'm going to say that again. Not cases, not diagnoses. People going to the hospital for COVID-19, named after the year 2019, when Trump was president and let it spread. Well, it's 2023. And in the last two months, hospitalizations have gone up 43 percent. And as scary as that is, consider this. 60% of hospitals stopped reporting COVID ICU data back in May. Guys, it's okay to mask up, please. So the first time I met Robbie Robertson uh, was at the old VH1 studios in New York City. I was very young, and I was an 80s kid who had gotten into it kind of backwards. I fell in love with his solo career first because he put out an album in the 80s. I didn't know the band. I, I knew there was a band called the band. I'd heard the wait, but I didn't know. We didn't have internet back then. And he puts out this album. And like you too is his backup band on two tracks. Peter Gabriel sings backup on one of the tracks. I, 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 Daniel Lenoir produced it. And it sounds as good as the Joshua tree or so it came out the same year. And I fell in love with it. And when I first met Robbie, At VH1 years ago, he couldn't believe that I was a fan of the solo stuff first and discovered the band later. But that's how it was for a lot of us who were born after the 60s were done. I was madly in love at the time with his Music for the Native Americans album at this point. And he he was so amused or concerned, he actually gave me a cassette with a demo of some of his new tracks. He was that kind to me on our first meeting. And, you know, I knew a couple of songs by the band as a teenager, but the first time I heard Robbie's first solo record, produced by Daniel Lenoir, I I was just knocked over. Martin Scorsese, his best friend, directed the two videos for it. And my love of this music drove me to soak up everything the band had done. Now, Robbie Robertson was, of course, not a singer in the band. Levon Helm and uh, Richard Manuel and Rick Danko, he wrote songs for those three guys to sing. As Bruce Springsteen said in the documentary Once we Were Brothers, just imagine you're in a band with three of the best white singers in the history of rock and roll. Of course you're going to write songs for them. So years after they broke up was... Only when he began singing, he'd been a celebrity for a couple of decades by the time he put out his first album. But after this, I I got into Blonde on Blonde, and I couldn't believe it. My love for his guitar playing matched my love of his songwriting. The first time I listened to Dylan's bootleg of the, the Judas concert when he went electric, when the guy yelled Judas in Britain, and Bob said, play fucking loud, and they did like a Rolling Stone. That's Robbie Robertson's guitar. I hosted his first ever internet chat that he did in Santa Monica in the late 90s. Um, and it was the first internet chat I ever did. And I just took questions and we hung out. And afterwards, he invited me upstairs to his private studio. And like, I got to hang out with one of my idols for hours. I can tell you, I don't recommend meeting your idols because nine times out of 10, it's really going to disappoint you. <laughs> Robbie Robertson, by the same token, when there's are celebrities, you can't stand and you have to meet them. Nine times out of 10, they're douchey. You feel validated. But in the case of Robbie Robertson, I couldn't believe how kind he was to me. And I sat with this guy in his own personal studio discussing everything. And over the years, I begged Robbie to consider at least a small tour. You know, that song by the band Stage Fright. Robbie wrote that about himself. He didn't want to do it. He didn't want to be on the road. And I'm like, you're nuts. Don't you get that rush? I did the same thing that George Harrison when I did my TV special with him. Robbie Robertson was very patient with me. One time, when, when artists were having tours to commemorate their specific albums, I cornered him in the green room at Sirius X Imp, and I reminded him and his manager that every song on Storyville could have been a single. That's the record you should tour for. He smiled. He hugged me. He got the fuck away. Robbie Robertson was the band's lead guitarist and songwriter. Songs like The Weight, Up on Cripple Creek, The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down... He helped reshape American music as we know it and became synonymous with Americana, despite the fact he was in a band where four of the guys were Canadian. Only one American in the band was Levon. And yet that's how we remember them from their years as Bob Dylan's incredible backing group, their own stardom and the way they just embodied this kind of old fashioned Western community, their virtuosity as musicians. They influenced everybody. They changed rock and roll. They influenced everyone you love, including the Beatles. The band only lasted about eight years after they released their 1968 debut record, Music from Big Pink. And in that brief eight years, they totally changed pop culture. They, they sort of took us out of psychedelia. And that first record, it, it made Eric Clapton break up Cream. I mean, Paul McCartney quotes Robbie Robertson in the TV appearance when they played uh, Hey Jude Live. The Beatles stripped back Let It Be to be more like the band. Last month, we celebrated Robbie's 80th birthday on this show. He was born in Toronto, July of 1943. His mother was Native American. His dad was Jewish. And he was never got to completely fit in, and yet he found a way to fit in everywhere. He loved music from a young age, and he spent his summers at the Six Nations of the Grand River Reserve, where his mother had grown up. Now, he never met his actual father. His actual father died before he was born, and he only learned of his actual dad's life years later. His mom had remarried a a factory worker, and growing up, um, his name was James Robertson, and young Robbie Robertson believed that was his biological dad. And he fell in love with music. And the guitar. In the time of the Vietnam War, when so many people were at war with each other, he left high school before his graduation, toured Canada with a lot of rock bands as a teenager, and joined Ronnie Hawkins, that madman rockabilly legend, joined this backing band when he was only 16. Ronnie Hawkins famously said to him, I'm not going to pay you anything, but you'll get all the pussy you can handle. And Robbie Robertson, at 16 years old, went to live on the road. And the stories he could tell. I mean, Buddy Holly gave him guitar tips. He, he, he saw the Velvet Underground and Aretha Franklin. He got high with the Beatles. He, he hung out with Hendrix before Hendrix hit it big and was calling himself Jimmy James. Of course, the band was already there together behind Ronnie Hawkins. Lee on Helm, Rick Danko on bass, Richard Manuel on keyboards, and Garth Hudson playing everything. They were called the Hawks. Eventually, they became the band. They had a very tight musical bond. They just, they just knew how to play with each other. And Bob Dylan saw it. And he plucked them up. I mean, he, he got Robbie to play guitar on Blonde on Blonde. And Robbie convinced him to hire the other members of the group as the backup band. And they toured our planet in 65 and 66 when Bob went electric. Robbie Robertson was the lead guitarist. Every night, they were booed. He told amazing stories about it. Lee Von Helm quit the band. He couldn't take the booing. Robbie just thought he had a front row and then history and his guitar playing was stunning listen to blonde on blonde and hear how much he contributed to those songs and then of course dylan got his motorcycle accident and that tour was off they all went to woodstock and they began making music music they never intended the world to hear that was the basement tapes recorded in the basement of the big pink house released decades later considered to be the first real bootleg after that they were the band dylan went back on the road without him They went on the road without Dylan. They played Woodstock in 69. They were on the cover of Time magazine. And their first two records, Music from Big Pink and the band, just changed everything. They didn't look like anyone. They didn't dress like anyone. They didn't sound like anyone. And their songs were covered by everyone. Aretha Franklin, The Grateful Dead, Joe Cocker, The Staple Singers. Then they reunited with Dylan in 74 for one of the most successful stadium tours ever. And, And again, they had problems. They didn't get along around 76 they broke up again they they decided to do it at san francisco's winterland ballroom they invited everybody from neil young to bob dylan to muddy waters to ronnie hawkins to guest. he asked robbie asked his friend martin scorsese to film it it became the last waltz released in 1978 considered to be the greatest concert film of all time and it's beautiful and after that robbie tried to be an actor he hung out with scorsese a lot They did a lot of drugs. They partied a lot. They both left their wives and lived together. And they began a collaboration, working together on films. Robbie Robertson did the music for 14 Martin Scorsese films, including Killing of the August Moon, coming out later this fall. Raging Bull, he picked all the songs. I mean, even a movie like, like, uh, oh God, uh, Shutter Island with DiCaprio. For that one, it's a psychological thriller. Scorsese told Robbie, I want to hear a soundtrack of songs that have no melody. And Robbie Robertson, who was an incredible archivist of music, he knew everything, compiled a a dynamite, creepy, Hitchcockian soundtrack of all atonal music with no melody. He also did the songs for Casino. He could do anything. The Irishman as well. Robbie Robertson took the role of the leader of the band, but he was very frank in his later years why they broke up. He said he didn't want to be on the bus when they got pulled over and found with heroin. That was his reason. That was his reason to pull the plug on the group. And it led to a lot of acrimony. I mean, he stayed friends with all of them except Levon. Their friendship was well documented. Their feud was well documented. They did apparently reconcile before Levon died. Martin Scorsese put out a statement today saying, Robbie Robertson was one of my closest friends, a consultant in my life and my work. I could always go to him as a confidant, a collaborator, an advisor. I tried to be the same for him. Long before we ever met, his music played a central role in my life, me and millions and millions of other people all over this world. The band's music and Robbie's own later solo music seemed to come from the deepest place at the heart of this continent, its traditions and tragedies and joys. It goes without saying that he was a giant, that his effect on the art form was profound and lasting. There's never enough time with anyone you love, and I loved Robbie. The band regrouped without Robbie Robertson in the 80s, and then Robbie began his solo career. And I mentioned the movies he did with Scorsese. I mentioned the first solo record, Robbie Robertson. Great songs like Fallen Angel, uh, Showdown at Big Sky, Broken Arrow wound up being a big hit for Rod Stewart a few years later. The band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1994. Robbie went and played with them. Lee Von Helm did not show up. It's hard to express how much this guy's music meant to me over the years and and how much he reinvented himself. You know, from this guitar hotshot kid to being this Americana songwriter, to then making movies, being an actor, to then um, having a solo career. Like in his late 40s, put out his first record where he was singing, and they were hits. And then after his second record, Storyville, which I highly recommend, it got like four and a half stars in Rolling Stone. um, He did the soundtrack for a TBS film called The Native Americans, It's called Music from the Native Americans, and it's a stunning collection of music, both traditional Indian First Nations songs with First Nations musicians, and Robbie playing guitar and writing his own songs and melding them together. I've never heard anything like this record. I've recommended it many times over the years. When it was done, one of the elders said to him, are you done with us now? You made your music, you grew up on a reservation. Are you done making this kind of music now? So he came back in 1998, and made the album Contact from the Underworld of Red Boy, which actually combines electronica with rock and roll and traditional Native American songs. It's just amazing stuff. He kept growing and evolving and finding new ways to express himself. He, he, he made a documentary a couple years ago, and we did a big town hall here at Sirius XM. It was called Once Were Brothers, and it was the song about the band and why they broke up from his point of view. Martin Scorsese and Ron Howard co-produced it. At one point, he tells the story about when The Wait was first written and he played it. And Bob Dylan said to him, this is fantastic. Who wrote this song? And Robbie said, me. And Dylan just said, damn, you wrote that song? Not unlike George Harrison finally showing John and Paul what he was capable of doing. Now, he never toured. I used to beg him to tour. He was very patient. He didn't want to do it. He put out another record in 2011 with Clapton and Steve Winwood and Tom Morello of Rage Against the Machine and Trent Reznor called How to Become Clairvoyant. His last record was 2019 Cinematic, which he promoted on our show. Van Morrison's on that one. And he published a wonderful memoir in 2016 called Testimony that I highly recommend. But watch the film Once Were Brothers, Robbie Robertson and the Band. He was surrounded at his death, including his wife, his ex-wife, her partner and his children and some of his grandkids. In lieu of flowers, the family has asked that donations be made to the Six Nations of the Grand River to support the building of their new cultural center. For a guy who didn't sing in his own band, the first few solo records are astonishing. And I'm most proud in my brief little friendship that I got to introduce Robbie Robertson to T.P.'s Frank. I know that was a big moment for him. <laughs> Again, the media is going to focus on the band and the last waltz, and they should, but... Listen to the Royal Albert Hall Show from 66. Listen to his playing on Blonde on Blonde. Go deep on the basement tapes and take the time to, to dive into his work post-band. The solo records, the book is testimony, and the documentary. The last time I saw him, he told me this story about how uh, Dion DeMucci was in the control room when they recorded Like a Rolling Stone. He was full of that. He was an encyclopedia of music history because he was music history. <laughs> I said, I, Dion, run around, Sue, the Wanderer, he was hanging out in the control room when you guys did Like a Rolling Stone? And he said, yeah. I said, well, I'm going to have Dion on the show. I'm going to ask him about that. He goes, look, oh. he just said to me, tell Dion to call me. <laughs> I'm like, okay, Robbie Robertson tells me to have Dion call him. I told Dion. Dion called him. <laughs> I, I've done my work. Look, I could tell stories about him all day long, but just listen to the music, read his book. It's very rare to meet an artist that... that you admire that much and then you meet that person and you're even more impressed in person i'm glad i got to be alive at a time when he made music he made the world better and as sad as i am i'm so happy for everyone who hasn't yet discovered his work with dylan or the band or his solo stuff because you guys have some exquisite beauty to look forward to we want to know what you think. All night long, we're at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Zach is calling from Tennessee. Zach, welcome. You're on SiriusXM.
1: Hey, John. That was a hey. beautiful um, That was a beautiful scroll there about uh, J.R. Robertson. Thank one you. One of my all- all-time inspiration.
2: Yeah. I mean, great guitar player and then wound up being a great singer 25 years into his career.
1: Yeah, he was real uh, self conscious about his vocals I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken. And then he 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 overcame that. One of uh I think it's kinda apropos now if you go back and watch the last waltz, one of my favorite parts of that movie is when him and Clapson they're playing further on yeah. down the road and they're yeah. both taking, you know, a couple of solos and Mm-hmm. Robertson just smokes Eric on that
2: it's insane. In that song. You see guitar strings flying all over the place, but yes, anyone watching and i I never really noticed it till I saw that movie in the, in the theater on a big screen for one of the anniversary tours, but Robbie Robertson blows Clapton off the stage yeah. next to the giant chunk of Coke falling out of Neil Young's nose in the third act. It's my favorite <laughs> moment of that film
1: and uh you know i I know you you were reviewing his. Complete body work, which I love, but uh, Last Waltz. I mean, I am 44 and I've been listening to the band since like 1989 when I was 11 years old. My my wow. dad had a copy of uh, Rock of Ages. Wow. And uh, so I man, that I didn't know. I, I was just, just looking on Twitter and then I I saw your your posts and so uh,
2: yeah, I found out today. Out, but I, you know what? I, you know I found out. It's I, I was I was texting to Greg Proops about like, hey, what do you want to talk about tonight? And He writes back, oh, I'll talk about Biden and this and Robbie Robertson. And I'm like, oh, we love Robbie. He does our show a lot, and I didn't yeah. know why he wanted. And then I found out.
1: Well, and it, it's kind of i I don't know if it's ironic, but we were just talking, or you were just talking about Garth Hudson's birthday the other night, and you were saying that's that right. The one of the last two. It's it's he's so the last one. Some of the. Like yeah, and like Ringo is is Ringo the oldest of the Beatles? ringo's the oldest yeah, or is he, yeah. yeah i mean it's 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 kind of weird how these things play out, but uh, anybody that wants to see Eric Clapton, who's got some bad uh stuff going in the last couple of years, you know who's all, yeah. who is also one of my guitar heroes, both of these guys got me into guitar. Yeah. And, and, you know, the famous story is Eric
2: Clapton broke up cream because he was so blown away by the band. He flew to he flew to Woodstock to visit them. And (laughs) Robbie thought they were going to like he was trying to join the band. And Robbie's like, no, we got a guitarist already, Eric. Thank you.
1: Well, you know, George, George also wanted a piece of that action. You know, it moved everything away from the heavy, like you said, moved everything from the heavy psychedelia and ushered in the country rock era, which might be my favorite. Era. There's a so great photo
2: of Robbie hanging out with George Harrison in Woodstock in the late 60s, and it's beautiful. They both had a lot of similarities. Uh,
1: yeah, well, I'm sorry for the loss of your friend. and uh, Anyways, uh, at least it's, it gives us something else to talk about other than the uh, orange uh, shithead. So uh, <laughs> thanks, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, I just wish it wasn't all my later.
2: favorite artists dying. I wish we didn't have to lose Sinead or, or Robbie to get away from this for a day. But you're right. God bless know, the artists I for reminding us no, what well, matters.
1: Bubble rap, James Taylor for me, and maybe Paul McCartney and a few, a others. <laughs> Here's
2: the thing: when uh-huh. we're old, we're no, when we're old, we're not going to remember how shitty Donald Trump made us feel, but we'll remember how good, great music made us feel. So that's how I reconcile it. Thank you so much, Zach, for your call eight six six nine nine seven forty seven forty eight. Brian in Oregon before the break. Welcome.
3: Hey John. Yeah, I have no idea. Robbie uh, Robertson died today, <clears throat> but um what a what a guy and it sounds to me like he uh uh did a line out of the weight to you about touring uh, yeah just shook his head and no was all he said <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah i know uh, well you're right
3: what a, what a bad deal we
2: well, have to stay and keep Annalie company yeah yeah and hell of a life
3: he, yeah and uh
2: and, and again, he was an actor. He's in Carney, opposite Jodie Foster, and uh, he's in Sean Penn's movie, The Crossing Guard. He plays the guy Angelica Houston leaves Jack Nicholson for. Um, I just love seeing him pop up as an actor here and there because he was a bit of a good-looking guy, too.
3: Yeah, and what and it's, it's amazing. Oh, all these people, you know, were, uh, it's going to be interesting to see um, how many generations it takes to get the kind of uh, talent that came up in the late 50s, 60s, 70s. Yeah. You know what I know mean? What you mean? Yeah. But um.
2: But again, it, it evolves. It evolves. There's different kinds of talent. You know, there's exactly. different kinds they, of artists doing different kinds have of music.
3: They'll have their own uh, Frank Sinatra, Beatles, and what have you.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Um, there's good stuff now.
3: Oh uh, yeah. Thirty billion a year. to oil companies should go to student loan re- reduction.
2: If you insist, I'm down for it.
3: Yeah. Well, I heard Biden say that. Let's redo- get rid of these subsidies to all these fucking oil companies.
2: It makes and, a lot of sense. Uh,
3: to me, it wouldn't take that many years to pay it all off.
2: I love it. Yeah, I mean, let's see if that actually could happen, but I'm a believer.
3: Yeah, it, it seems to me a no brainer. But <laughs> but again, the stu m- But m- I, I think they. I think they've.
2: I just think that they have they have marketed their student loan debt relief plan so poorly. I mean, instead of saying this is good for the economy, this is good for the middle class, this is good for home ownership, this is what the Bible commands. They've just sort of let the right wing set the narrative of, you worked hard to pay for your student loans and now these freeloaders are blah, 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 blah. And oh, I just, I get so frustrated watching the Democrats be a punching bag all over again.
3: It's awful, yeah. And then they're going to uh, let Trump trial i mean the whole trial thing with trump is going to be a shit show of threats death threats and whatnot he's still going to be non-jail
2: um let's see about that we'll see there's going to be a we will see uh the more i look at that indictment the more i don't know how he's going to wriggle out of it but we'll wait and find out i gotta run brian but i thank you so much for the call the great bob seska is waiting in the zoom room we'll be right back in just a moment at 866 997 4748 this is progress
4: Freaker or wherever you get your podcast on, because, you know, I love it when you do.
2: We are back at 866-997-4748 between Ohioans, not just saving abortion rights in their state, but saving democracy in their state. And then the story that Donald Trump's Twitter has been DM'd and then, of course, Donald Trump has a new lawyer, John Lauro, who's here to make Rudy Giuliani look like Clarence Darrow. It's it's crazy. And I need to have someone smarter and taller than me. So crack open a fresca. It's time for Bob Seska. These fascists are grotesca with their vulgar Trump burlesca. Thank God we got Bob Seska broadcasting from his deskca. His humor is Kafkaesca, and his height is statuesca like the top of Mount Aleska, like John Podesta on a Vespa, put down that Putinesca and behave yourself, Francesca. It's a politics fiesta when you're rolling with Bob Seska. Welcome back <laughs> hey, to the show, sir. Yeah, I can never live up to that, so thank I, you. That's okay. Thanks. I'll never get tired of embarrassing <laughs> you with it. Hello. Um, hi. Yeah. Hi. Fun times, uh, huh? Weird, weird week. Yeah. I, I I actually began the show on Monday by, by having a tribute to trump's new lawyer john lauro who really did the full ginsburg telling the judge we have it's it's way too soon for us to go to trial in the next year we're not ready but i have time to do five different tv appearances on one sunday morning and my Mm -hmm. god bob we just played every clip from every show with every lie and realizing we might have been unfair giuliani might have been as good as his legal representation gets (laughs) yeah it's not just the lies. I mean, he's confessing to
5: at least one of the counts in the latest round of indictments. And that's the count in which they're accused, Donald Trump is accused of conspiring with his co-conspirators to uh, sort of strong arm Mike Pence into overthrowing or overturning the election. The actual word that Mike Pence has been using in the press lately is overturn the election. And so what we know from the indictment, first of all, is that, It's just as wrong. It's just as against the law to conspire to do that as it is to actually carry out the end game of the conspiracy. And so that is, uh, I think, Section K in that particular uh, part of uh, U.S. Code. And so what John Laro has done, one of Trump's back of the phone book attorneys, apparently, is he's gone all over TV and said, Yeah. So what what the co-conspirators did with Donald Trump is they tried to convince Mike Pence to overturn the election (laughs) by throwing out the electors and stopping and pausing and letting the state legislatures go back and do whatever they were going to do, whatever the part of the fake electors scheme. I guess that would have kicked in at that point. But that's exactly what John Laro has confessed to on Donald Trump's behalf to that count of conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding. So, congratulations, John Laro. You've just blabbed at least one of the counts, one of the four counts. And by the way, if I haven't mentioned it already, it's admissible in court. So, all of that stuff can be used by Jack Smith to make his case in front of the jury. So, congratulations, Donald Trump. Money well spent. Actually, it's not Donald Trump's money, it's Donald Trump's stupid supporters' money, who he's wasting (laughs) on these
2: attorneys. So, congratulations, money well spent people. Okay. Maybe in your liberal universe bubble, that's the case, Bob. But here in real America, Donald Trump has a First Amendment right to free speech. And that's all this is about. They're trying to take away his right to free Mm -hmm. speech. And I'm going to move on now and not think about it any more deeply. (laughs) Now, what I just said sounds what I just said sounds really stupid, but it's the exact line that is being fed to all right wing Americans on all right wing news outlets. There seem to be three arguments here. Uh, One is that Trump's just had his free speech taken away. And hey, it's not against a lot of lie. Uh, Two is, well, he just didn't know, even though even though they all told him he had lost, he believed he had won. He can't tell the difference between fantasy and reality or three, the real plan somehow get elected and pardon yourself. But I mean, you know, when you're facing 78 criminal charges in three jurisdictions, it's going to be an interesting year. And honestly, I'm a bit stunned and impressed at how many conservative people don't actually know what he's been charged with. I've been having some conversations with some right wing friends here and there and DMs with people who like to attack me and just asking questions of what they believe. And they literally think that he is being attacked because of the First Amendment. Um, Mm -hmm. I point out he's been charged with conspiracy to defraud the U.S., conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, uh, obstruction of and attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights, the rights being to vote and have your vote counted. So many people don't know these charges. They will never Mm -hmm. read the 45-page indictment. They believe whatever the right-wing media tells them. Is that going to help Trump for more than just a few weeks? Because regardless of, he may be able to fool the, the the folks in the base he's not fooling prosecutors or judges no he's not and that in fact that's not the point at all uh what he's doing right here is
5: he's calculating that if he can keep his entire base intact as long as he doesn't lose any of his base as they see these counts being uh, uh tried in court as they see the evidence being rolled out if he can maintain those people by presenting this ridiculousness about First Amendment rights or uh, whatever the the latest thing is. They're violating his rights in some way or fashion. Yes, somehow, yes. Yeah, exactly. So what that will do, and this is, I think, his calculus in all of this, if there is any calculus, is that if he gets elected again, then he can pardon himself. So his defense is not so much what his lawyers are necessarily doing. And, and obviously that's going on. But I think he's got this secondary insurance policy, which is running for president and making sure that he wins. And in order to do that, he has to keep all the Republican voters in line. And in order mm-hmm. to do that, he's got to lie to them about what the charges are. Well, you can either believe me or you can believe the deep state. And if you believe the deep <laughs> state, well, I don't know what to tell you, but you've got to believe me because here's all the reasons you should believe me. And that's that's the propaganda and disinformation that we've been hearing about since the indictments dropped. So I think yes. that's well, the strategy. Yeah,
2: he, he is the hero to the shallow state. I will I will give you that. Uh, <laughs> what, what is this? Uh, what is this about Trump saying he'd rather be in France? I I, I heard him uh, calling Chris Christie a fat pig in a passive aggressive way about seven times. But I, I didn't hear the France comment. Yeah, well, uh, you know, he was
5: doing I think it was either a fundraiser or a rally the other night. And as part of it, it, this is one of the things that sort of caught my attention in that series of clips that came down on Twitter from that rally. And at one point, Donald Trump said he'd rather not be in the United States. He'd rather be in the south of France right now. Right. Enjoying himself. And I thought immediately back to and I don't care. I, I, you know, frankly, I'd rather be in the south of France right now. But I kept thinking back to like the 2004 election. I kept thinking about the 2008 election. If. Let's say John Kerry had said during the 2004 election or the run up to it, let's say this point in time in the 2004 election cycle if John Kerry had said, you know, I'd rather not be in the United States. I'd rather be vacationing in the south of France. Well, the American pundit class, can you imagine <laughs> every pundit on cable news and every, literally every single Republican would have been accusing John Kerry of being an effete, dainty, France loving America. Hater. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And but with Donald Trump, he he can just say that and it just goes right on by because of the ongoing tennis ball machine of awfulness that he's responsible for. So no one really pays attention to the fact that Donald Trump said, I don't want to be in the United States anymore. I'd rather be in France. Yeah. To me, that's the that's the shocking part of it. Now, now let's not
2: leave out. He he just accused the attorney general of Georgia of having a romantic affair with a gang member, which is a complete Mm -hmm. lie. And he has no yeah. evidence for it whatsoever. Uh, and, and you know, uh, it's not a good year for Donald Trump lying about women. Women have learned how to sue him for this, but he's still doing it. Yeah. You're right. If any Democrat ever, ever said that, it, 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 they'd be outraged. But it's not just that he said he'd like to be in the south of France. It's what he said immediately following that. Sh- I can't believe this guy can still shock me. Can we can we play the whole clip, Chris? This is Donald Trump having his public meltdown like a ice cream cone on a hot day in Chernobyl. (laughs) Here he is. Listen, listen, it's very quick. Listen to what he says after saying he'd like to be in the south of France.
6: Oh, it's a phony story. They know it's a phony story. They say he's going to go to jail. These are not, these are not Mrs. Lewandowski. You hear that? Can you imagine of that with these kids? Can you imagine what, look what your husband got me into? I could have been relaxing at Mar-a-Lago or in the south of France, which I would
2: prefer being in this country, frankly. Oh, oh, yeah. which I would prefer to being in this country. Exactly. Imagine any imagine Barack Obama saying that. Yeah, that's what I was just saying. He, he's obviously an America hater. You know, that's what mm-hmm. every
5: single Indeed. John Kerry had said those words. I'd rather be any place or whatever the quote was. I'd I'd rather not be here in the United yeah. States. I'd rather be in the <laughs> south of France. And, you know, maybe that was part of the times, you know, the days after 9-11 and certainly on through the 2004 election, France was like a hot button thing. There were the freedom fries because Free fries. France yes, wouldn't of participate in the invasion of Iraq. That's and right. uh, and John Kerry was routinely bashed for being able to speak French fluently. I mean, that yes. was all he did. He was also, I mean, uh, he guy- was also,
2: I'm sorry, he was also bashed for being able to speak English fluently. Let's not forget who he was running <laughs> against, George that W. Bush. That is also true. Yes. That's right.
5: I mean, this guy, he was a multiple Purple Heart winner, wounded in Vietnam, which, you know, contra- You know, we I don't want to relitigate the 2004 election, but suffice to say- all <laughs> of I'm these still out- mad about it. Been- we can do it. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I'm when st- it comes to John Kerry, I mean, my God, the the way they managed to paint that guy- as being i mean they were saying what they were essentially trying to do was say john Kerry is gay that's
2: really the it was was even worse than that they were they were were saying they were smearing the war hero so you'd vote for the draft dodger and it worked it did work absolutely and it worked along with ballot initiatives
5: uh in a bunch of states applied by carl rove in order to uh it was a ballot initiative to ban same-sex marriage in a whole bunch of red states And that managed, I think, to draw out more Republican voters for George W. Bush. I think that may have helped George W. Bush win in a definitive way in that election. And uh, and so, yeah, that's uh, that's one of those strategies that I'm glad finally the Democrats are employing using ballot initiatives to get things done.
2: Bob, um, let me shift gears and ask you about the feel-good story of the week and maybe the feel-good story of the summer, and that's what Ohioans did yesterday in their special election. The Republican Party knew that abortion was on the ballot in November. They knew abortion was popular, so they tried to find a way to trick Ohioans into not voting for what they want. It failed. Here is, uh, from earlier today on CNN, Corrine Jean-Pierre commenting, this is A2, Mm. on the massive implication of the no vote in Ohio.
0: This has been what we saw in Ohio last night is a clear rejection to uh, Amendment 1, uh, which really is a win for democracy, right? It is a win for voting. It is a win for Ohioans. And it is so incredibly important. Just think about this. And you all have been talking about this all morning. I've been watching the show. Ohioans came out in an off-year election, and literally rejected what Republicans, elected officials were trying to do, what special interests were trying to do in the state, which is basically weaken uh, voters' rights, weaken the rights of voters in the state. And so what, what we saw last night is such an important victory as we head to a critical vote, which should be made by the people, decision that should be made by the people. When you think about how women in Ohio are going to are, are going to figure uh, they're going to vote to decide if women in Ohio is going to have the right, the freedom to make a decision on their reproductive right, to make a decision on their health care. So this is, again, a win for our democracy.
2: Bob, your thoughts? I mean, literally, it was a vote to see if they should be allowed to have control over their own state constitution. Yeah. Bunch of things wrapped
5: up into this story, John. First of all, uh, with issue one, uh, it wasn't even close. I think it was a 14 point spread. They didn't even get close to passing that awful thing, which would Mm -hmm. have increased the threshold from. 51 percent of the vote to 60 percent of the vote in order to pass a ballot initiative, which is what's which, they were, as you said, are trying to prevent that on the fall ballot uh, as far as abortion rights go. And yeah. so there's that. Secondly, it gives me hope as far as. People paying attention to what's going on in the world and voting accordingly. And uh, this is obviously overturning Dobbs, uh, overturning, I'm sorry, overturning Roe v. Wade with the Dobbs decision was a colossal blunder. I mean, this has mm-hmm. backfired so badly against the Republican Party.
2: That's also a positive note. It's so um, true. The same people that would have voted for them before Dobbs are still voting for him. They got exactly zero new voters. Yeah. They actually lost a bunch. And that's going to have a generational impact on their electability. I'm sorry. Please continue.
5: Yeah, no doubt about that. And then the other thing is this uh, 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 pro-choice constitutional amendment that's going to be on the ballot in the fall. That's going to drive out a whole lot of voters to support that ballot initiative, which will then trickle down the ticket as far as other Democratic candidates who are running for office. And so that could be uh, good news for some state and local races in Ohio. On top of the fact that this is a huge bellwether for 2024. The fact that this ballot initiative failed by 14 points, issue one I'm talking about, is such good news for what could possibly happen next year. Now, obviously, Donald Trump and Joe Biden weren't on the ballot, but it gives us a sense of the potential in terms of Democratic turnout and Democratic energy going into 2024. So I'm, I'm feeling pretty confident, at least in Ohio voters at this point.
2: I'm feeling much more confident in Ohio voters. Bob, while we have another minute, let me ask you your thoughts on the latest revelation that Jack Smith slid into Donald Trump's DMs and took them with him to examine. I mean, wow. Wow. Yeah.
5: Well, that's actually the the DMs part of it is the thing that's really encouraging to me about this story. I mean, there are lots of dimensions to it. But the first thing that occurred to me when I saw that Jack Smith has successfully subpoenaed Donald Trump's Twitter account it's not necessarily the tweets or even the drafts of the tweets. Right. It's the DMs. What kind of communications were happening in the DMs? And if Jack Smith has access to all that stuff, he obviously has access to the DMs, too. And we're talking mm-hmm. about the dumbest crooks in the history of dumb crooks. I mean, morning zoos uh, on FM radio for years to come will have plenty of material for their crooks are stupid wacky morning zoo segments just on donald trump alone because they're so dumb i'm sure they put all kinds of incriminating things in there we're talking about dan scavino who was the guy who did a lot of social media for donald trump and so on so that's all great news and the other thing is elon musk tried desperately to thwart the united states government in this attempt to subpoena this twitter account but yet elon musk has acquiesced To 83% of the requests for censorship from authoritarian regimes around the world, except it's the United States that he's fighting back against. Interesting. To defend Uh Donald Trump, by the way, very, very cost him $350,000 in the process.
2: Or to please whoever wants him to defend Donald Trump. We still don't know about that (laughs) little apartheid yeah. nepo baby. Mr. Seska, mm-hmm. you are the smartest player in the game. What's the best way for our audience of Riffraff and Miscreants to follow you and keep up with all your doings?
5: Oh, please uh, support my Patreon page for my podcast. That's uh, bobseskashow.com. Different levels you can sign up for. Minimal $1 a month. That's all it takes to jump on board and comment on things and download the app and all the rest of it. So, yeah, bobseskashow.com.
2: Yeah. Bob, thank you for being with us. Quick break. We'll be Thanks, right back friend. with your calls on SiriusXM. I'm John Fugelsag. This is SiriusXM Progress. We're at 866-997-4748, bringing good trouble to the right-wing bubble. Tomorrow night on the show, we're going to get some uh, up-close-and-personal strike commentary from the one and only legend, Mr. Ron Perlman, who's done our show many, many times, but never as angry as he seems to be now. So we're very excited to welcome Ron back. (laughs) Normally, Ron Perlman comes on the show, and he wants to talk about politics and craft, and all I want to do is ask about shooting Quest for Fire 40 years ago, Ah! playing a caveman. Right now, however, I, I had a couple of people I was praying would be able to join us when we came out here to do the show in L.A. for a couple of weeks. And uh, Greg Proops is one of them, a terrific actor, a terrific stand-up comic, a terrific voice artist, TV host, widely known to you, Riff Raff, as uh, an improvisational wonderkind in the UK and the US, for whose line is it anyway? He's also performed on Drew Carey's green screen show and voiced Bob the Builder, and his podcast is The Smartest Man in the World. It is essential listening. Few people turn my brain on as much as Mr. Greg Proops. It is so good to welcome you back for the first time since the pandemic. Hello. I know, right? Yeah. Thanks, John. It's so nice. Everything's normal in LA. Uh,
6: now you know, just right? Just in time
2: for a new variant.
6: Yeah, exactly. I was just gonna say, uh, you're gonna have to mask up soon, so that'll I be know. fun. <laughs> Can I tell my quick Ron Perlman story? I'd love you too. We're on a plane coming yes. back from Calgary and they're at ComCon or whatever, one of those things.
2: He does those things now. Yeah,
6: and, then, yeah. and uh, it was me, Dave Foley, Jeff Davis, because Foley was sitting in with the group. I'm in a group called Who's Live Anyway? Yeah. That has Ryan Stiles in it, he's the tall And one. many live shows coming up
2: going to plug shamelessly yeah. here,
6: but go on. So Ryan is in the group and, um, you know, I've worked for Ryan for over 30 years and I, I still don't get it. You know what I mean? I just don't get it. I don't get why people think he's funny. I don't- Really? Well, whatever. As you long know. as he knows how you feel. Right? Yeah. It's like Laurel and Hardy worked together, but they didn't eat together or whatever. Um, <laughs> they did actually, but- <laughs> But sparingly, one of them. Uh, So uh, we're on the plane and we're coming back and everybody gets, and we're all like, Ron Perlman, Ron Perlman's on the plane, right? We are all having a cow. And um, can we say have a cow? It's 2023. Yes, it's gnarly to do that. I just, yeah, I dialed you back. I would even say it's a mint to do that. So go ahead. (laughs) Right? So everybody's in character. Jeff Davis, I don't don't know if you know Jeff Davis, but Jeff is um, uh, just fantastically, reassuringly shallow. And um, uh, 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 goes up to Ron Perlman and goes, H- Ron, I, th- yeah, I-, I think we have some friends in common. You know, in Hollywood, there's Los Feliz, da-da-da-da-da. And Ron Perlman, yeah, whatever, right. <laughs> then Foley comes up to him and goes, um, you were on this animated series that blah, 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 blah. And he's like, yeah, whatever. And I go, Ron. Did you get to meet Jean Louis Trentignon when you were in City of Children? And he went, "No,
5: he wasn't on the set." Ah. And
6: I was like, "I thought th- th- I'm the City only one." Asking, City of Lost yeah, Children, City yes. Lost Children. Jean Genet, only? classic. What did I call it?
2: Uh, City of Children.
6: Oh, City of Lost Children. <laughs> that makes it so horrible <laughs> to call it City of Children. City of Lost Children, which uh, no, no people don't remember that. As you know, in you know, Caro is maybe their best film.
2: Uh, L- exactly. Amelie
6: has its uh, has its adherents, but I think that's their best film. I'm not a big Amelie person, but yes, I would agree. And uh, He's, he's awesome in the movie. He's he awesome in the plays the lovable, one. older, you know, guy who's a mentor to a child and everything. And, uh, but Jean-Louis Trenadon is a brain in a jar. And he just passed away last year, Jean-Louis yes. Trenadon. was yes. a famous French actor for you infidels out there. And, uh, uh, and they have to keep putting Such brain, crazy, brain uh, aspirin, mm-hmm. aspirin in the jar, which made me laugh. And, and he didn't get to meet him. And, but that was my first question. I thought, I'm not going to ask you about Hellboy. And I'm not, although I was desperate to ask about um, Dr. Moreau he loves that no one when you don't ask
2: about Hellboy which I'm not inclined to do he's great in it but you know it's been done but Island of Dr. Moreau is all I ever want to talk about right Right? I mean it's it's so fascinating yeah Like it's crazy. We can talk all day about the bad stuff and yeah. Val Kilmer doing whatever he's doing there, yeah. alienating the director, I think. that's That was his yeah. objective as an actor, was to piss off the director. But I will say till my dying breath that Brando is fucking dynamite in that I film. I love it. And I it, can't take my eyes off Marlon Brando in the worst film ever made.
6: It, me too. I love it. And um, uh, 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 the homunculus that yeah. he's created in the because he, he creates people out of monkeys and whatnot. And A third
2: version of that because Burt Lancaster did it in the 70s and the original right? was Charles Lawton Island of Lost Souls, Brandon, I believe. My, Michael York was in the Michael 70s. Michael York was right? the lead guy That's in the 70s it who washes up. But the, the original, it's actually the scariest with Charles Lawton Island of Lost Souls. And Bella Lugosi plays Ron Perlman's part in the original. That's right. Are we not men? Are we not men?
6: Yeah. <laughs> hmm. I love that picture. The homunculus name or goofing around and the homunculus is picking at it itself and the homunculus is a small this dwarfy tiny, creature.
2: fascinating little creature with South Park does the parody yes. of
6: this and they always have the little homunculus with them. Right, like and Brando goes, um, <laughs> please, please, please don't do that at the table. And that was the part that made me, was it improvised? Are they really that crazy? And you think, all of those things, that movie really... It was off. The... It's, it's so. It's Showgirlsian in the fact that its internal logic is is you're already gone within thirty seconds. Oh of yeah. Is happening.
2: It's actually a much better film and a much more moral film than Showgirls, oh, which absolutely. I think is just the most obscenely horrible, vulgar film. But in the last reel, they just go, yeah. "Oh, you guys were taking this thing seriously." Holy yeah. shit. Yeah. Oh, gang rape. Okay, you're a drama now yeah, after that... two hours of trash. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I completely. I could talk about this movie for hours. But know, right? we should. Go. Yeah. You should come here tomorrow and talk to Ron with us. All um, right. It's great to see you. I was. T- Telling the listeners that I got the sad news about Robbie Robertson today, having a confirmation email with you, and and I was like, oh, why does Greg want to talk about Robbie? And then within two minutes, I I, I looked at my alerts and found out why.
6: I knew you would know him, and I knew you knew him. My wife is a huge fan, and she yeah. was super upset, and I had to tell her too. I was on my phone. I'm on jury duty this week. Of course, I can't talk about the kiss. But um, <laughs> uh, they're, they're uh, trying to snuff your free speech rights out. I say you say whatever the hell you want. I'm going to put the system on trial
2: this time. They, you John. should.
6: This Don't let the deep state silence no, you. No, no, no. This is the one time that the little man is going to get his back. And uh, I've been <laughs> hiding in a bunker all afternoon. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm doing Frederick Forrest and falling down. And um, <laughs> oh. so thank you. I'll be I'll be alienating your audience. Also, all Also, rest in peace it. to Frederick Forrest <laughs> yeah, as well. There we are, but another what a one. year!
2: This freaking year is I like know, 2016. Right? all over again oh my God, i'm not over horrible. david crosby and tina turner and now i'm dealing with no! Sinead
6: and robbie well, and and paul rubens and paul uh, rubens oh so, oh, so many oh, great people yeah, yeah. well uh, yeah so anyway robbie uh uh i met him a a couple of years ago i was on strombo show up in toronto george i don't know how you say his last From name trombopolis yeah he has a yeah. long he has a long, long intriguing thing. greek name yes. and um very menu-y and uh, he's a lovely guy and he has an afternoon show and it's really hip and uh, Robbie Robertson's in the dressing room and my wife like you know when she was in high school so like I mean like she she went and saw Carney in the theater okay that's how big of a Robbie Robertson because I've I've been
2: talking about the Gen X people like me (laughs) who got into his solo stuff first before we knew about the band did he
6: know that you could do that that's
2: what I said I was like because when U2 is your backup band on your first solo record and it's the 80s holy crap so yeah I, I amused him, I think, a lot the first few times I met him because I was so much more excited to talk about Storyville and, and music for the Native Americans than up on Cripple Creek.
6: I would have thought you'd have been, because you're such a
2: huge Dylan fan. Yeah, but I was so young back then. I didn't know we didn't oh, have internet. Right. Yeah, wow. I got into, I was a teenager, so I, I you know, Daniel Lenoir put this record out Yeah, after Peter Gabriel and You 2 Here's Robbie Robertson. Right. I didn't know who he was, so I was like one, and all day people are writing me. 80s kids who got into him that way and then went backwards to discover the band. That's amazing.
6: Well, I mean, it, was, it also speaks to your longevity and durability and and um, viability as an artist, and how potent you are yeah. that people would pick you up. So there I am in the dressing room with him, and Jennifer and I watched the Last Walls a thousand times. When she was a teenager, I think she made her parents drive her to go see Rolling Thunder. You know, like Amazing. she's really, really into it, you know, and loves the band. And she turned me onto it. I was always scoffy and way more, you know, uh, <laughs> I didn't like this. I had to be kind of dragged into Dylan and the band and all that. And the moment I was, of course, I liked it because I realized that I wasn't being hip and sophisticated I was being an impertinent white punk and so uh, I met him and in the movie The Last Waltz they go through this whole you know be- deal about how long they've been on the road and how they're going to quit and all this jazz and if you're, I'm sure your listeners are familiar with the movie The Last Waltz and and they're always smoking cigarettes and being interviewed and whatnot yes. and they go it's a goddamn impossible way of life I mean you're out there and then he says at one point the road takes the greats and you're like "Um, a lot of people tour till there are a million mm-hmm. and then he goes Buddy Holly? And I'm like, wait a minute. You can't just chuck in that the road took Buddy Holly. I mean, it was more the sky took right? Buddy away, if, to be fair. yeah. So I meet Robbie and I get him to autograph his book. He's got the picture. It was the picture book, not the one. Right. The, not not testimony. Not testimony, but, not yeah, testimony, the, picture, but yeah. the picture book, which was beautiful. And of course, he's very studious with his glasses and yes. whatnot. It's still
2: gorgeous. I mean, the man was maybe the sexiest man I've ever
6: met oh like, my god awkwardly sexy right movie star you movie know?
2: star sexy yeah
6: yeah. and, and, and you know the demeanor and he's so yeah. sexy and thin his whole body's hanging off of his cheekbones and I, mean, I go, half Jewish half First Nation right, you have say, got uh, the uh, right mix right yeah. and, and his mother like he, he posted a picture of his mother on Instagram like a week ago yeah because I followed him on Instagram and he was posting up to like he was I posting know. he was posting yesterday yeah Anyway, I go to him. I get him to say, we, my wife's a huge fan. you sign the book, of course he does, he signs the book. Yeah, Greg, I'll sign the book for you. And I go, uh, <laughs> but he goes, what are you doing? And I go, I'm out on the road, you know. And then I couldn't resist, because Jennifer and I have been doing it as a private joke for years. And I went, the road takes the grades. And he went, <laughs> over his glasses. <laughs> Be careful out there. And I thought, I know, you know, (laughs) I know, you know, that, you know, I know. And I, I, and Jennifer went, did you really have to say that to him? And I said, I did actually. Yeah. I'd been waiting a thousand years and it was so funny. And he was nice about it, of course, but there was a beat. (laughs) (laughs) That little impertinence, impertinence landed. And then he decided, no, I'm just gonna. (laughs) Well, I mean,
2: what I always took from that was when he's talking about the road, he's talking about
6: drugs he's talking about partying
2: that was the reason the band broke up they
6: were so druggy and they all had so many issues and yeah yeah robbie said in in,
2: in the in in once we're brothers which i consider to be sort of a sequel Mm. to the last waltz where says he produced it and he he said he had kids at this point and he didn't want to be on the tour bus when the cops pulled it over and found all the heroin yeah that was his reason
6: yeah And and they were that kind of band too i mean they were hard partying Yeah, Uh, they sure were they got the chicks and you know that was their that was their motif i mean rick danko getting thrown at a japanese prison in the 90s (laughs) they are not
2: messing around (laughs) but i mean is it true it's true of of comedy as well we've known people who just i mean poor ralphie may i mean i've known people i've loved who just the road just it's that kind of life and some of us can skate it and some of us get eaten by
6: it i yeah no well listen i i I gave up drinking a couple of years ago, but and it wasn't. Uh, I don't go to meetings or anything or bum anyone out. Uh, although I know, I was a, a couple years ago. I was the year before last. We were doing Nightmare Before Christmas in London, and they started to pour booze after the show for everybody, to for a toast because we'd finished the show. And I started to say, "I don't drink anymore, everyone. <laughs> Excuse me, but Pollyanna has something to say." And so. I just didn't. I realized I was about to. Because people were in high spirits. The whole hallway's full. People are pouring whiskey out of a bottle. So I just took my glass and went, yay! Like, and then I realized you don't have to really do the Hollywood thing of letting everyone know where you're kind of, you know, John, I can't eat those because they have gluten in them. How do you know that? You know, like,
2: yeah, whatever. I always say, like, I'm not vegan, but I'm willing to come over your house and make you feel terrible about how you eat. <laughs> right. And it's the same. I can't tell you how many times being a, a light
6: drinker uh, that I have faked it for for social ease. Oh, sure, you sure. Know.
2: Can I have a Sprite, please? Thank you. Put that's a lime pre- in it. There we go. I can, right? pass. I can pass now.
6: I was never particularly druggy. I'm way more uh, pot smoky than anything else. That yeah. was always and my... Is, is pot, pot smoking's not druggy.
2: Uh, it's planty. Well, I... It's not get... even pot anymore, right? We don't... That, that's...
6: that's it's California you know, sober, so you, know, weed, you still yeah. get high, but I just try Andrew, not to yeah, drink.
2: Everyone comes out of rehab and gets weed to get through the process
6: I think so I mean I, it wasn't like I start I I mean I have glaucoma and I've had a bunch of operations in my eyes and people go like does marijuana help and I was like I've been conducting an experiment since 1976 <laughs> and I can tell you with some assurance that it doesn't work at all you still have to get the surgery and all that it my, really my uncle has glaucoma
2: and he swears by cannabis and he, he just turned 80 today oh so, right yeah. but but like I mean has it been good for you creatively does it help you as a writer as a performer or does it just help you decompress from all that? Uh, the marijuana? Yes.
6: Uh, is that what the question was? The question is yeah. yes,
2: does it help you with the uh, I think that was the qu- I, don't I know think, how I got here, right? right. Yeah. I uh,
6: I I um I don't know. I remember uh, the, and I really shouldn't quote someone who was this uh, druggy and unsupportable, but Hunter Thompson always said, oh, I don't really think that's a great go-to as I, as I think of it. If only he was quotable, I agree. Right? Yeah. Uh, he goes, um, he said, marijuana's always been a great comfort to me. And I thought, um, I, I th- uh, Louis Armstrong said, it's better than t- 30 assistants. Uh, and and Louis Armstrong, I don't think was very drinky, but he, he yeah. did smoke a lot of weed. Oh, they wanted, Ainslinger wanted to take him down. Yeah, very much so, and and evidently would say I'm ready. He'd smoke at the interval, at the intermission, and then he'd come back and say I'm ready. And there's lots of concert footage of him in the second half coming back and going I'm ready. Um, But I don't know that it improves anything. I wouldn't say that. I I remember Artie Shaw said that he had a guy in his band who liked to smoke a lot of reefer in those days. Mm Gauge and muggles, <laughs> mesh. And uh, he said, uh, you realize that you, uh, you're pretty high in the second half of the show and that you're not as good as you think you are. And the trumpet player goes, nah, you know, the reason I, I blow Reefer is that I, I can get free, right? I can get crazy with solos. And, and Artie said, because I'm going to prove it to you. So that he goes, the interval that night, I come over to him and I go, give me a couple of bombs. So he said, I smoked two bombs and I got back on the stand and I blew my brains out. And after the show, I went and the trumpet player turned to moment. you were right. Ha <laughs> 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 so, I don't know that it improves you, but it certainly eases my um, anxiety, I guess, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You know. I get it. Uh, I don't really get that high, like, to write or anything like that, although I can.
2: I mean, some people swear by it, to write. I don't, you know, I think maybe for rewriting, but not actually for right? first I drafts. Can, I can get on stage and do it. I mean, I improvise- see, I could never do that. Yeah, see- Rick I, Overton used to try to get me to do it. I could never no, do it, Ricky, it on stage. Ricky, though. Well, Rick, I don't know how he functions. Man. He's amazing, but I yeah. Know.
6: Yeah. But that's the how I would do with him. Uh, one- I remember getting high with him in San Francisco once and he gave me this giant spiel about how we were the new poets and all, you know but that's Rick right I remember like,
2: yeah Rick tried to get me high at, at oh the no, rally
6: one night in San Francisco right. and I was
2: like I'm not as good as you at this I, I, I can't I'll be up there talking about the guy's clothes in the front row and that'll be my whole set yeah so.
6: but he, he trusts the butterflies that tow the chariot of his soul or whatever Indeed. So he's, he's always looking <laughs> that way he's Mr. <laughs> left Brain so I'm excited
2: because Who's Live Anyway is on the road right now featuring yourself and Joel Murray and Mr. Ryan Stone. Jeff
6: B. Davis, and uh, Drew Carey is going to be joining you for the show in San Francisco. That's right. We're there on Saturday next uh, on the nineteenth at Davis or Davies Hall, as we call it in San Francisco, which is a super, super swank, fancy concert hall. Where, golly, I think I saw Linda Ronstadt with there with like Philip Glass in the eighties, and you know, really? it's, it's, it's yeah. that kind of. It's a heavy place, so I was really excited. We have an awesome promoter that we work with. Um, And he he booked us in there. He's got us into so many hip things that I really love him for it. Like, all of a sudden, we had other people we were working with over the years, and then all of a sudden, we're playing, like, Town Hall in New York and Davies Hall in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And you're like, wait a minute, this just got a little groovier. I mean, not that I don't love playing Eugene. I love playing Eugene. Uh, (laughs) The city. Mm -hmm. Uh, But... So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Mind you, we're playing Folsom two nights before, so there's always perspective. Wow. Yeah, Folsom, California. And um, our road manager said to me, should we stay in Folsom? And I went, I don't think so. No, I'm, I'm staying in Sacramento. We'll drive over to Folsom. <laughs> I, go, if you, I go, if you want everybody to bum out, then yeah, we we could stay there. I mean, I'm sure it's a lovely place. uh my I think mean, Johnny Cash thought it worth playing right? more than once, so yeah. My old buddy Warren Thomas said to me once, I remember- Oh, we, God bless Warren Thomas. Yeah, I did a pilot with him down here for a talk show that he was doing, and then I flew back and did, I think, the worst one-nighter in the Bay Area the next night at a place called Stripes in Fremont, where the promoter there would be like, Greg, I can't pay you the $50 because the Patriots lost, you know, or- Chico came by and I owed him five hundred for an eight ball I bought two days ago. So God, it's like Chris Penn is right here, That's right? Yeah. It was, and so <laughs> I said to him, I did the TV with you yesterday, and I did Stripes in Fremont tonight, and Warren went, "That's what I like about show business: perspective." <laughs> We are at
2: 866-997-4748. We're going to be taking some calls, Mr. Proops, if you can handle that. Yeah. 866-997-GRIT. Um, it, it, it's never gotten tired for you doing the Who's Line show because it, you get to do a different show with super talented people every night.
6: Well, some of them are super talented. I mean- I've, I mean, Ryan, you don't think so much of right, you. It's all right. I've had to drag them behind me like a husky in the identity have, rod yeah. pulling a refrigerator for so long. When you're as sexually attractive as I am and dynamic, it's very difficult to be on a a show for 30 years and know that your light's being hidden under a bushel. It's really
2: true. Uh, they they do bring you down, but mm. it's got to be worth it for all the tension you can generate between Drew Carey and Aisha Tyler. Playing <laughs> those two against each other has always been great for me.
6: It's, it, it, <laughs> uh, it is. Uh, I don't get tired of it and I love the road. Uh, uh, like Lee Von Helm said, I, I uh. really like the road. I don't get, I mean, every once in a while you're like, I could really take a break. But then we do take breaks. So, uh, yeah. And I think my wife's the same way. I remember years ago we were in Australia and we did like six weeks and we had to go to New Zealand and we flew all over the bloody place and we were exhausted. And on the night we had to get up at like two in the morning or whatever to catch a flight. And I remember turning to her and saying, you want to go home? And she was like, no, I'd stay another month. And so I know I'm married to the right person. That's because nice. Like she, will, she will road dog it. And um, I, I love doing it too. And having Drew with us is great because he's really loose and also he's been on um, Prices Right for like, what is it, 40, 50 years now? But it's about
2: 45 years, I yeah, think, yeah. since yeah. the late 70s. He's right, they, yeah.
6: right after Bob Barker. Uh, uh, when
2: Bob Barker left in the Carter administration. Exactly. He took he took took over. Uh, Drew yeah.
6: took over, and it was still, uh, I think, water-powered television then? It was. It was yeah. still black and white, but and, the world was black yeah. and white at that point. So he, his crowd skills are just awesome. Because he's playing five days a week. Oh, my God. Yeah. So when we go, like, Drew, will you introduce this next bit? Cut to, he's in the audience. You know, like running up and down the aisle and stuff, and the place is going batshit because it's Drew Carey running up and down the aisle. See,
2: and that's the incredible discipline. It's great to be a wonderful stand-up, and you are one of my favorites. But, I mean, what I learned back in, in Harold school was when you can be a comedian and go on stage for a couple hours and bring no material, mm. you'll find what you're made of. I mean, you are a completely different kind of performer. On these improv shows, than your stand-up act.
6: That's true. Although the last, all the last albums, including the new one I just made, I improvised those. The last three albums. Right. Now, I
2: want to ask you about that because we've discussed this before. I know they're improvised, but but how much of a spine is there? I mean, right. you at least have a. You have a a, a running, uh, you know, a, a chart
6: in your head, a, an outline going to where where the endpoint's going to be. Certainly, and um, because you do it four or five times over the weekend to make a record, mm-hmm. um, because you have to record. This set a bunch of times to get it right for this, for the you know, them to be able to cut something together that's coherent, um, and cut out mistakes and chunk. Um, I will do the same thing over so it's not improvised every second of every minute. Um, but I'll go on with an idea or something that I want to flesh out, but not having written all the words, John, like you know, sometimes, uh. It's like a song. You'll have all the words written out and you want to get it right and get every word specifically perfect and make sure the intonation is right and when the letters go there and like, like sign or whatever, you know, when you first start, they go write your act down and they take a red pencil and remove exactly. everything exactly. that's bad. Yeah. So I love working that way too because of the specificity of it. Um, I had a comic say to me once, you're like someone who's writing a novel on stage because of the, the length of the words and the descriptive sentences and all that jazz. So I really like working that way too, where and then I don't
2: that's... buy that. I think that's part of what makes your act special, though, because it's not like you're writing a novel on stage. It's like you're listening to a rack on tour who loves the language. <laughs> <laughs> Fucking Leonard Cohen's writing a novel in this. No, you have <laughs> you're good with the language, and it serves the. It's if if it diminished the laughs, I would disagree.
6: But yeah. your verbosity feeds the laughs. It's true, and so that's that's how I do it. And then I try, and then I try to keep it as lively as possible when I'm talking about the things. Um, a couple of them are like party pieces or. Um, Mostly it's where I've gone and where I've done or what I think about this and that. And then that'll be the spine of it. And then uh, I made an album a couple of years ago and then the plague hit. That's right. And I sat on that album and now it's completely been sitting for three years. So that n- album never came out. And I think that album's funnier than the other three. I've put <laughs> out I listened to it and I did all the notes and I just couldn't... I, during the plague, I had a complete panic attack for a year and a half and didn't do anything, so... I wish most people could understand the faith... The
2: true faith in a higher power or a higher power that dwells within that it takes to go on stage and throw caution to the wind and not lean on your material, but just see what comes out. It's one of the reasons I'm not an atheist is what actually (laughs) can happen on stage when you just leap without the net and trust in a, a, a... well, a higher
6: power, Greg. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, a friend, Will Durst, said to me at once. Um, they, there's that old expression: you can make anything funny if you try. And like, so that's the sort of the ethos I'm trying to go with. Is like, I know that if I have a story to tell, I can jazz it up enough while I'm talking yes. to make it good because enough. you know where it's ending. Yeah, yeah. And the, but the uh, uh, so that's how I improvise it. I mean, Smart. I really do make it up in so much as any. I haven't gone out and worked the material for months and months on the road, which is what anyone else would do before they'd make a record.
2: <laughs> That's a supreme level of confidence. Do you? I love your podcast, The Smartest Man in Thank the World. You. Love the book, too, but I, I love the podcast, um, it, and I'm wondering... How much of that is scripted? Do you well, have that's not scripted
6: at all. Is I there mean...
2: any kind of spine to that? Or you just, I mean, oh, your there's... references are so beautiful, and it seems to be so well-constructed, these monologues that you do. Uh, you seem to meander your way back to the starting point, like a good Mr. Show sketch in some of these. I and mean, uh, I've always wondered how
6: much of it is outlined. This show's great tonight. I'm really enjoying it. Um, <laughs> I, the, uh... <laughs> it's great for the Greg Proops fan club. Right? It's a flattery. Ch- charges my battery. Um... Uh, the the well, I did the first podcast in like 2010 and my wife, Jennifer, who's my conciliary and, you know, Emanuenza said, uh, uh, this is what you should do. You, this is right. Do this. And so I took that to be the jumping off point. I always thought stand up was the most uh, uh, immediate way to connect with the audience because it was so like the news, right? Like get up and you talk, talk, talk. And there they are. Yeah. Um, and then I found out that I thought podcasting was a lot more because it's a combo platter of the radio and stand-up, so it you're is. able to illustrate and uh, uh, and 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 amplify. And at the same time, I could fall over backwards, not look where I'm going. And then struggle, struggle, struggle in my mind to keep one lobe working so that I could do that callback and bring back yes, what I was yes. talking about back together again. So when I would go out and do it on the road, or like I just did one in um, uh, London like last week, I know a couple of beats I'm going to talk about or I'll write it down. Like I want to talk about this subject. It was Mick Jagger's birthday. So right. I, I, I'm going to do Mick Jagger's birthday. I'm going to do this, 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 this. And then of course I ended up making fun of doing Mick Jagger and Keith Richards talking and then... As you know, no matter what satire you think of or what unbelievable political um, point you're going to make, if you can do impressions or juggle the audience, thinks yep. you're a genius. So Yep, <laughs> exactly. It really doesn't matter how cogent or pertinent you were. One has to remember that Lenny Bruce was a real hack impressionist before he was the sage a satirist. A really good hack impressionist awesome. before he did it. Yeah. Awesome, He yeah. does great voices. So.
2: But that's, what it, that's why it means something. You can be avant-garde yeah. once you've mastered the basic skills. Yes. Yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I I, when I saw Jagger's name trending last week, I didn't know it was his birthday, and for a second I was terrified. I mm. thought, oh my God, another solo album. Right. Thank God, no, it wasn't the <laughs> Case. Um, I, we we got to talk politics too, but before we hit the break, let me get to at least one call. Uh, ben in Michigan, you're on SiriusXM with Mr. Greg Proops.
4: Hey, Greg. Oh, hi. I haven't, I haven't seen you in years. I I, uh, I lived in uh, San Francisco area for 20 years, and saw you at the punchline. Uh, you did a po- you did your uh, smartest man podcast there. Nice. I got your book. I had, uh, Jennifer signed it also.
6: <laughs> um, yeah. That's cool.
4: Yeah. No, and I saw you do Who's Live up on the mountain there, that winery, that winery joint. Uh, oh, I love cool. that one.
6: So, Saratoga.
4: Yeah, yeah, Saratoga. Yeah, and you were there. So with, south uh, of San Jose, not, not
6: for our New York fans. <laughs> no, 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 no. Anyway. We uh, love that gig because uh, they served us great Mexican food there,
0: man.
4: Yeah, well, oh, no. Okay, so I moved back to Michigan in 19, right before the play. okay. Oh, and I haven't had a real—I haven't had a real taco in four years, and, and I'm <laughs> I, that's, that, and you are the two things I missed most about California.
6: Oh, thank oh, you, Ben. Well, yeah, and are
4: you—are you, are you taking part in the vendetta
6: it, against waterfowl up there? There's—there seems to be a real urge to kill all the ducks on earth up in the Wisconsin-Michigan area. Yeah, are South, you in the U.P. South, or are you in Detroit or something?
4: No, no, no! I'm just outside of Lansing, so oh, okay. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm more but inspired pretty... by uh, how
2: they're arresting false electors up there. That's uh, it's arresting false <laughs> oh, elector season well, in Michigan. Is, I didn't know that so was coming. She's so awesome, Dana. Nussle's oh the my greatest. god! I,
4: I well, I was worried, you know, coming back here that it was going to be too red, and it turns out we've got the greatest governor in the country. Yeah, you do. yeah. I mean, you you're really do a little bit of what she does. Uh, yeah, but day after day after day, it's just. Working out this deal, working out that deal, making bringing jobs in. And yeah. Dana Nessel is a goddamn rock star. Uh, she's an all- she's a, Yeah, uh, and yeah, yeah, she's our attorney general. Yeah. And I even like a secretary of state, Jocelyn. Jocelyn uh, Benson? Women, <laughs> women, yeah, women getting shit done. And Stephanie Miller said, you know, why do we lesbians have to do all the hard work? Uh
1: Right.
4: And, like in Van Rock. Yeah, and, <laughs> yeah.
2: That's true. Sister um, Rosetta Tharp.
4: Yeah. And so uh, I, I was very, very pleased to find out the direction Michigan is going in, especially uh, since, you know, I learned since I moved here that one of my kids is gay and the other one is trans. And so wow, I, I have been shocked. At how receptive my little community is, and it just it just fills me with hope.
6: That's really beautiful, man. I'm really glad to hear that. Your
2: kids are lucky to have you for a dad.
6: Well, of course, and uh,
4: (laughs) yeah. So (laughs) I, oh god, it's just so good to hear you again, Greg. I, I, uh, thanks, pal. I think, yeah, and I want to say before I probably have to go soon uh, that. Island of Dr. Moreau, you're pushing my buttons here. That movie is the most <laughs> awful thing that you can't not watch.
2: It's fantastic. Yeah, I it really saw it is. in the theater. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, did I saw too. that with, with Ed Burns, She's the One, the same weekend. And what? I can tell you, Island of Dr. Moreau was the superior film by far. <laughs> yeah. Ben, thank you very much. we got to hit a break or I'm going to get yelled at. Will you stay with us, Mr. Proops, because I want to go political when we get yes, back. Yes, please. Uh, I need some Democrats to have uh, a good talking to, and you are the man I turn to for those right moments. On. We'll be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. This is Progress. We are serious XM Progress, thrilled to be joined by one of the funniest men in the game, Mr. Greg Proops, who's not just going to be playing with the Who's Line guys at Who's Live in San Francisco later this month, but also the Greg Proops Film Club is presenting the 39 Steps at American Cinematique at the Los Feliz 3. I love that theater.
6: Isn't it fun? It's a great Um, place. It's right next door to this little French bistro where you can sit outside. So we went and had dinner after the movie. And then you feel like you're really hip because you just showed a black and white movie. And then you went next door and had dinner at a French bistro. And, of course, it's Silver Lake, so there's annoying hipsters everywhere. So it's great. So you can enjoy the hipsterness and be arch at the same time and Superior, which is something I quite like. Indeed, Uh, Jennifer programs the film club and always has. I've picked maybe four movies in, like, ten years. And one of them was Return of the Living Dead. And the other was Scrooged. Scrooge, okay. not Scrooge. The Albert one with Finney Albert the musical, Finney. very good film. I love it. And Jennifer's like, I'm not going. I think right?
2: along with the Muppets, uh, one of the best, uh, one of the best uh, Dickens adaptations. I watched the Muppets that, that, last Christmas too. I honestly, that, that love, book love that. is really hard to make a good movie. A lot yeah. of great theater, not a lot of good movies. Ever.
6: No. And also, I love the Muppets one because Michael Caine is in another movie where he's actually Scrooge. Yes. And there's a part he where, he where he screams so at them. Yeah, and they all fall apart. You know, and that. Um, <laughs> so yeah, she picked a, the thirty nine Nine Steps because it's about terror and treason yes. and that's where we're at now so ever since uh, forty-five, Orange 45 was elected the film clubs changed its tone somewhat and we started showing uh, you know the, all the presidents men and things like that but obviously things like 9 to 5 yeah. which is a wildly subversive movie about you know male female Very much so. paradigm and blah 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 and then last month we showed uh, oh no uh, we showed Akiru which Bill Nye's made a um, a remake of called Living. Oh yeah, about the yeah. fellow who's who knows he's dying and yeah, so he does. A Oscar great nomination de- last year for this. Yeah, yeah for the neighborhood and whatnot. They had a festival of that of uh, for that, and then now they're having. I think it's kind of like a podcast festival at Cinematheque. But of course, I've been doing this bloody film club for a hundred years now, and we played every bloody theater in Los Angeles with it. Um, uh, but it's really fun. And last month we shared... Cleo 5-7, to which is a film by Agnes Varda, Mm -hmm. who's a French filmmaker who doesn't get a lot of credit for, like, starting the French new wave. It's always Godard and Truffaut and uh, Melville, this and that. But she really, it's a black-and-white picture about a girl who's a bitching model in Paris, and she's also kind of a pop singer, and she's taken a cancer test, and she's waiting for the results. And the movie's only 90 minutes, so so critics would say it should have been called Cleo 5-630. to <laughs> because it's, it's her supposed to be two hours waiting. And in that time, of course, because it's a French film, everything in the world yes. happens. And it's a beautiful, magical film. So she picked it. And sometimes the film, like the Cinematheque will go, we'll give them three or four pictures. And they'll tend to pick one that's a little more mainstream than the other two that are a little more avant
2: Battleship Attemptkin or Black Panther. Right.
6: Yeah. And then they, so she put Cleo 5 to 7, and I sent it to them. And they picked, they said, let's show Cleo 5 to 7. All of a sudden, it's getting written up. Not our version, but people are writing about it in different papers around the world. I'm seeing all of a sudden there's this big resurgence. Anya Svart has been passed for two or three years now. She did a great thing at Cannes a few years ago where they brought out a cardboard cutout of her. Anyway, it was packed. And I mean, I'm not like, bra- like yes, I'm bragging, but it, we showed like Hard Day's Night, and it's pretty full. And we showed Jacques Tati's and Michel Hulot's Holiday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And there was like 70, 80 people on a Tuesday night. Not bad. Right? Clio 5 to 7. There was like 200 people they are banging the place down. Couples were coming in. When a group of six guys came in together, I was like, okay, what's wow. happening? Everybody
2: mad that video stores closed down came <laughs> right? to the screening. To
6: see a 1962 French black and white film about a girl who That's what it. we used to do, right? right? I, I remember... It's, remember? We used yeah, to I do I remember that. the new Beverly. I was all about that. Oh my yeah. god. So It was so much fun and we were so happy that we had such a giant turnout for it. So I do spiel before the movie. So 39 Steps is uh, one that I I'd never seen that. Jennifer showed me several years ago, that Hitchcock film. And Sorry. it's really, really like all Hitchcock great Hitchcock movies, it's propulsive. I'll argue that he's the greatest filmmaker of all time. I'm not saying he's the most deepest or that he has the biggest message or anything like that. Okay. I'm saying as far as entertainment value, his 10 best movies, I will put up against anybody's 10 best movies as, yeah. that keep your interest in that. Okay, and here's sure, the yes, secret. yes, Plot, 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 well, plot, yeah, plot, Well, yeah, because I was going to say, it's not like
2: character relationships. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no,
6: It's not about
2: believable human relationships oh, oh, in Hitchcock films. No it is one about wipes plop. their yeah.
6: nose. No one has sex. I mean,
2: there's no black no, people like uh, that. You know, well, you know who has sex? Uh, in Sean Connery and Marnie. Ah, I had some sex in that
6: one. Well, okay, and then and uh, what's the one where yeah. north by northwest and when they go oh, well, that the train one, tunnel? The ultimate I mean, final
2: shot of a film. Yeah, he
6: would never show a couple grappling. Oh yeah, that's not going to happen. Um, he's never shows, and no one will ever sneeze or anything like that. You know what I mean? Like, there's mm-hmm. no reality in Hitchcock. Yeah, but there's plot, 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 plot. plot well, That's to, what to
2: Hitchcock the... said: movies are reality with the boring parts taken out. Right.
6: And so, and, my, and I always said, if movies aren't better than life, then I don't want to live. And and so I think he really fulfills that one. I don't. People will it's an exciting picture because Hitchcock also does the awesome thing almost always of letting you know who did it immediately. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then you get to figure it out as opposed to, I know I wonder who's going to be, you know, there's never the Butler did it in the last reel. It's not. I get the Christie.
2: I'm still going to be in LA on August
6: 29th. <laughs> I might it. try and drag my family. So I've never know. seen the
2: 39 steps on it, big screen.
6: I was going to say, see it in the movie theater. We, uh, the other two ones we've showed were um, the lady vanishes, which mm-hmm. is one of my favorites. Talk about women in control in that one. And then I showed them, um, I picked Lifeboat, I'm very proud to say. What a good movie. And Lifeboat, in one set, talk about- You would not think that a film of a bunch of people
2: sitting on a boat and that's the only location it's would be gripping for 2 hours 2 ripping. hours of
6: them on a, well, and that one I remember saying before the picture he could have made a movie called Sofa that's how good a yeah. filmmaker Alfred Hitchcock is in like what's under the cushion such a good like filmmaker that his Hitchcock cameo in Lifeboat
2: is because someone's reading a newspaper and Hitchcock's picture is on the newspaper right?
6: how did he work it in
2: I hate to drag it away from uh, cinema and pop culture to politics but while what's, we have a few what's, minutes what's, let's, go, let's go let's go let's go to the dreary side of things uh Greg Biden is having a really good first half of his first term. Yeah, it's it unprecedented, and um, the poll numbers are what they are. Somehow, I suspect you're not worried about these poll numbers because of a couple things called Roe v. Wade and Donald Trump.
6: I'm not. Uh, I think things are swinging right now. I think if they had an election tomorrow, as Clint Eastwood said, you wouldn't win. Uh, he, uh, The public has fully taken on board Um that the dastardly plan by the Republicans is to not do anything. Correct. They don't have a, a well. Hunter Biden.
2: They're, they're going for Hunter Biden. Correct. They, well, they're they still have, talking that, that, that's, about that's Hunter helping Biden. kids.
6: That's helping healthcare. There was more about that today, with, and Comer and everybody else. And yeah. then uh, Laura Ingraham, who I h- hesitate to quote or even say her name, mm. years ago I was doing a, a dating show at, at Paramount, and she was on the next stage, oh, and nice. she was already a homophobic, you know, ball of hate. Yes. Uh, in any case, she said today uh, that Roe vs. is one of the great accomplishments of the Republican Party and they should really bank on it. And yeah, everybody it was should. like, do that. Yeah. Seven elections in a row. Talk about it a Absolute little. referendum on Roe. Yep. Absolute re- or Dobbs or whatever we're calling it. People do not want the right taken away. It's been proven time and time again. It's way, probably close to three quarters of the country. Yeah. I mean, I'm not even trying to exaggerate. Uh, probably more than 40% of Republicans. Right? Yeah. So they made a huge error and they overplayed their hand on that one. They've overplayed their hand on guns. They've overplayed their hand on not helping anybody. Um, when the Inflation Reduction Act and all the awesome, you know, uh, Johnsonian movement that Biden has brought to the table. Five new national parks and all that, including one mm-hmm, yesterday. Just yesterday. Uh, and making uh, an American Indian head of the Department of the Interior was such an insane fuck you so to Rick Perry. It was just, so just, incredible. Yeah, it was fantastic. Probably
2: not going to win him a lot of votes, but it just for history's sake, oh my God. It's fantastic. It's beautiful. And the head of the Park Service is also a full-blooded Indian. Um, also, I, th- I think though, around this time next year, while we're in primary season mm-hmm. and such or convention season, um, people are going to be noticing in their hometowns uh, a lot of construction. Buildings and bridges oh, and roads getting it. fixed and all that, all that uh, recovery plan money, all the infrastructure plan money, will be being implemented and people will see results
6: absolutely i mean i go everywhere a man and uh, uh when we're in tennessee or Kentucky, just for example, I'm not picking on the South. I happen to adore the South. Me too. And I'm not one of those people, I really detest when people go like, hey, fuck Mississippi, man, we don't even need them and stuff. Hate it, hate it. Well, first of all, a lot of black people live in the South, so fuck you for being a racist pig. Two, my whole family's from Mississippi, so fuck you again. Yeah. And and the idea that the government of these states, it's like when you go overseas, and they're like, we hate Americans, and you're like, I'm not in charge of the country. But that's it, I don't
2: hate Iranian people, I hate the mullahs. I hate Israeli people. I can't stand the Netanyahu government. Right? I don't hate Americans. I didn't like Bush and Trump. I mean, it's like not liking the civilian leadership of a country is no reflection on the people or the no. geography. And I loads, love Mississippi.
6: There's loads of beautiful people there. But when you drive through, say, for instance, Mississippi or Kentucky, I'll be on my little phone, you know, working my magic. And um, all of a sudden there's no Internet for two hours. On a back road yeah. between Knoxville and uh, uh, and Murfreesboro or whatever, yeah. or between uh, Paducah and and, and uh, uh, Lexington, and people don't know this because people don't drive around the bloody country the way we do. We're in a comedy group, so we drive in a van, like the, uh, and then we stop and we would have gotten away with it too because we're the meddling (laughs) kids. You're
2: just like wings in the early
6: days. Yeah, right? Except we don't do the double thumbs up and we don't wear lesbian mullets. But um, the the (laughs) the wings uh, and long sleeve, uh, those long sleeve t-shirts yeah, oh, we don't talk about wings enough. Yeah, no, we really... Next time
2: I get McCartney, I'm only talking about wings, and he's going to love it. Oh, boy. But yeah. But yeah, so, he would, actually. Oh, he'd love
6: it, yeah. Um, but so who, this is No one wonderful. brings that one up, John. I can't <laughs> believe you're bringing up wings. then uh, no one brings up... Uh, uh, Back to the Egg? I quite like that album. Oh, you were the one. Um, <laughs>
2: oh, I had Lawrence Duberon on. We talked a lot about Back to the Egg. Oh, did you really? Yeah, yeah. So, so but, there's,
6: no, there's no internet in those places. Yeah. Like It's a big void. And that's what Kamala Harris was always talking about when she go to the rural places and Down South. Mm-hmm. And like you said, the infrastructure is going to be a big deal. Will it turn people away from white supremacy? No. Nothing is going to make white people less evil. There really isn't. Other than the gradual march of time. Yeah, When we were little kids... Uh, as Colin Quinn once said, this country wanted to make a war on poverty so there were no poor people. You have to understand that mindset. Mm-hmm. Now, there's the... People like to say we're divided and stuff like that. I don't know if it's divided as much as propaganda has really destroyed a good deal of people's critical thinking. Yes. Well, let's not go into the whole root source of it. I'm optimistic when you have a black woman vice president who's very likely to stand for president after Biden stands, a black woman on the Supreme Court, a, a, a American Indian woman running the Department of Interior and all this money flowing back into the country, the economy picking up and everything, it can only be positive. People voting their heart and their conscience, like you said, 40% of Republicans. Ohio's not a strictly blue or red, blah, no. blah, 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 but, uh, honey, Kansas, and the others. Shocking. Yeah, Shocking. I mean, it's not, I'm not wrong here. Let me ask you about the Vice President uh,
2: a couple minutes before our next break. Um, with the exception of Dick Cheney, Have you ever seen so many people caring so much about how a vice president does their job? God bless Dan Abrams. But every time I go on his show over there on News Nation, the topic is always Kamala Harris's historic unpopularity. And I'm like, what does a vice president do but hang around to break ties and see if someone passes away today? It's not a complicated job. Theodore Roosevelt called it the most pointless job in the world. And yet somehow when a black woman has the job after 200 years plus of white men, we really care about how those eyes are dotted. I've never seen such scrutiny for how this job is performed.
6: It's misogynois writ large. Um, The fact that she's a black woman is the key to it. And as much as I think Dan is not an altogether inept person, I think he's really running a narrative that's super old school and old hat. He's also launching a new channel. Well, there you are. And also like, you know, look at the last guy. He wasn't aware that there was a fly crawl on him because the rotting putrescence of his soul was calling the insects forth indeed and secondly um he was uh attendant at his own execution and seems to be <laughs> oblivious to that fact <laughs> and and is still pumping for the team pumping for jill i think he would say
2: he's still asking the people who build the gallows to come on
6: over yeah and it's just like so you don't you miss that guy that's who you miss she's the greatest vice president probably in the history of the country the only other one i can think of that I thought was I thought Fitz Mondale was a, oh, an awesome vice Person. president and yeah. had a great deal of responsibility no one ever wants to hear this because but here we are and the, now you're forced to god damn it people listening to progress well, I listen
2: I will I do nice things about Mondale all day Please. right
6: Joe Biden was an awesome vice yes. president albeit as the media would say gaff prone which I love when you consider that we had four years of a guy shooting drugs out his nose and yelling while a helicopter choppered next to him oh yeah no one gaff. is gaff prone by the way Donald Trump is gaff prone
2: and lie prone I'll take the one who's just Gaffro. Hello, right?
6: So, yeah, I agree with you, John. I think it's an unfair thing, and I think she's done an enormous amount. Let's just take one quick second, and uh, the DeSantis thing was slavery, right? First, there was the book banning, then there was the trans banning, then there was Don't Say Gay. So, he's on a motorcycle ride off the edge of a cliff right now, like evil Knievel. Uh, Ron DeSantis' campaign is absolutely unsalvageable bottom of the Snake River Canyon right now. He's changed campaign directors for the millionth time. Mm -hmm. So, first, Gavin Newsom ran out there. And dissed him in public in Florida. And everybody, what's he doing? Why is he doing that? And then, like, you guys, you have to understand, we're all from the Bay Area. And when I say we, I mean me too. But Kevin Newsom and Kamala Harris are on the phone with each other, I assure you. Yes. And he didn't just go out there because he thought it up and, like, he wants to be president. He knows she's going to stand for president before he has any chance to. No. He softened him up, and then she went down and gave that awesome speech about slavery. And guess what? Slavery's still not popular. (laughs) After the Civil War. And so we kind of won that one. And I feel like that's what she's doing. She's throwing a light on everything. You know what? I just think as humiliating as it gets for Ron DeSantis, he will learn
2: valuable experiences for future work as a lobbyist from this pain. <laughs> we got to go. This is Sirius XM. I'm John saying Peace.